All right. The message tonight is, what about the person of the Holy Spirit? We want to look at the person of the Holy Spirit that is addressed by a personal pronoun very often, characteristic of a real person. Uh, he's not an essence, not just a power. He's not the force. Uh, he is a person. Um, it is imperative that you and I yield to the refining work of the Spirit of God, that he guide and direct us, empower us to live that life as we reckon the old man dead. Um, our, our energies, our abilities, our reason, our intellect is not sufficient to be born again um, or to do the work of being born again. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to be born again. Um, no one is sufficient in themselves and is the work of the Spirit of God. Uh, the late Dr. Ellen Redpath, in his book, A Victorious Christian Faith, this is back in the mid-80s or so, declared the following. He declared that the church today is professing more than she actually experiencing in regards to the work of the Holy Spirit and his power. And there are basically four groups that um, churches and Christians fall into. First, where emotionalism has been the criteria for every sort of experience, and it's attributed to the work of God and the Spirit, although it cannot be confirmed through Scripture. So there's a lot of emotionalism, a lot of experience, and um, everything that happens, they attribute to God, and, and so many times it's so contrary to the Scriptures or so um, off the wall from the Scriptures. And then there are others at the other extreme that... You have those who um, declare that the Holy Spirit is uh, not for today in terms of the gifts of the Spirit. It was only for the first apostolic church, and they're called cessationists, and um, that um, it's different now. Uh, that's the other extreme. And so they run the church more like um, a college and like a corporation and something, rather than allowing the Holy Spirit of God to deal with individuals and to commend them to God. In between these two extremes, we have those who profess much about the Spirit, yet experience little regarding the activity. And then there are those who um, profess much, but experience much of the Spirit life also, having a total dependency on the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where all of us want to be. You want to make sure that you are believing what the Bible says about the work of the Spirit of God. And you want to be responding in obedience to the Spirit of God and yielding to the work of the Spirit of God. And not simply just spouting off biblical texts about the Spirit or experiences. But that you are walking along and experiencing what you're reading in Scripture. And I don't mean to say, again an extreme where people are always saying that God's always talking to them or that, you know, they do this and do that. And again, that's extreme Pentecostalism that often is not biblical. If you look at the book of Acts and you move through and you realize the number of years that are recorded there and the number of miracles that go on, they're really not that many in terms of those years. So in other words, God does work and God will work. And we have seen much of that in this church. We've seen people be healed of cancer. We've seen people be healed of other things. And we've seen people not get healed. But the one thing that you want to make sure you don't do is that you don't speak evangelistically, exaggerating, or giving, um, trying to give credit to God where he really hasn't worked. And uh, that's uh, always a danger within the church where people start speaking uh, not really with truth, but, uh, but exaggerating. My prayer is that um, individuals will yield to the Spirit of God as well as collectively as the church body so that God can continue to work as he raises people up, anoints them, and directs and guides them. So let's look at... The question, what about the person of the Holy Spirit, through three vantage points. First, the important reason for the doctrine of the person of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that first. Second, the scriptural evidence of the person of the Holy Spirit in the Old as well as the New Testament. Because whatever we believe has to be biblical. And then thirdly, we'll finish off with the identity of 
of the person of the Holy Spirit. Let's begin with the important reasons for the doctrine of the person of the Holy Spirit. There is great ignorance about the Holy Spirit being a person. The old King James uses the phrase, Holy Ghost. Maybe you've read an old King James. It took me a long time to break away from the old King James. I still have it in my mind <laughs> to the new King James. But um, to some, be they non-believers or young believers, the phrase does not clearly describe a person, but may be a bit obscure and misleading. To others, the phrase Holy Ghost communicates merely a power or an essence instead of a person or personality. Uh, the Apostles' Creed for uh, centuries has brought many services to a close by the often repeated creed. Listen carefully. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Many of the hymns of Charles Wesley use the phrase Holy Ghost, at least more than 30. Now the idea is that which is sacred, holy, and divine, but not necessarily to the unbeliever. And ghost gives you the idea that, you know, some spooky or something. Well, really, it's just you can't see him. He's God and he's spirit. Now, the age of grace is called the ministration of the spirit in contrast to the ministration of death and condemnation in the Old Testament. You find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 through 11, where Paul contrasts the two covenants. The old covenant under the law reveals man's sin. It accuses him before God. That's what law does. When you drive down the freeway, a policeman does not pull you over to give you a good citation for driving. They usually pull you over to give you an infraction for breaking the law. The law accuses us. The only way you can be blameless is if you're perfect and don't break any laws. No person can do that. Laws demonstrate that we are lawbreakers, whether they be uh, driving laws, civil laws, or whatever. Um, we are lawbreakers. The Old Testament law was our tutor or schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, as you know, that we might be justified by faith in Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.24 tells us. The ministration of death had its temporal glory, as you know, written in tables of stone, symbolic of the Shekinah glory that was to fade away from the face of Moses. And Paul again picks that up in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 13, because he's dealing with this aspect of the two covenants. And he's using the background, the foundation of the Old Testament. Um, in fact, um, Paul puts it this way. Let me read it there. But if the ministration of death, speaking of the Old Covenant, written and engraved on stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the face of Moses because of the glory of his um, countenance, which glory was passing away. So as Moses went out to be with God in that tent, God would, um, he would go in the tent, God would minister unto him, he would come out, he would put the veil back on because it, 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 it's face shine with the Shekinah glory of God, but it was fading away, demonstrating that the law was just temporal. It was going to come a time when it would be completely done away because God's word is progressive. It's progressive revelation at all in parts. No one prophet had all the parts, but then Jesus came and all those parts spoke of Jesus Christ and he fulfilled all the prophetic types and symbols and emblems about him. Now, the ministration of the Spirit, written in tablets of flesh, that is our heart, which is the new covenant surpassing the old glory, the ministry of the Spirit being more glorious. Once again, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 9 through 11 says, For if the ministry of condemnation, the Old Testament, had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. 
For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. In other words, you can't, one led to the other, and one pointed to the other, but one was the complete and ultimate glory of that glory in part that was demonstrating forward. And so, though they're both glorious and they have their place, it, the, it, the ministry of the Spirit in our hearts is much more glorious and it has a greater aspect of God's covenant. Now, the Holy Spirit is worthy of worship and adoration being deity and not just, again, an essence. In 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, the Apostle Paul closes his epistle in the, to the Corinthians with a doxology ascribed to the Trinity. It says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and the love of God, the first person of the Trinity, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And it applies to all three. Be with you all. Amen. All three persons in their respective roles in the Holy Trinity. All three are God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Son, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son came to speak uh, tell us about the Father. The Spirit has come to tell us about the Son. The Spirit never speaks about Himself. Always about the Son. He's the silent witness of the Son. Now the person of the Holy Spirit is found throughout the Old Testament, but He is not identified as the third person of the Trinity as um, clear as after the incarnation of God. Through Jesus Christ. Um, in Genesis 1-2, he is called the Spirit of God. In Psalm 139-7, he's called thy Spirit. In Isaiah 44-3, he's called my Spirit, capital M, God. In Isaiah 48-16, he is called his Spirit, capital H, his, God. He is called only Three times the Holy Spirit in Psalm 51, 11, Isaiah 63, 10, and 11. That's the Old Testament. Now, the Holy Spirit is the source of life and power, the agent of the church, till Jesus comes for his church. Luke puts it this way in Acts 1, 8. But you shall receive power, Jesus speaking, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus was with the apostles for 40 days, and then he, um, he left, and he said, I will return the same way. And those, during those last 10 days, the 50 days of Pentecost, the Spirit of God was sent to the church, and the church was birthed at Pentecost. Um, the law was given to Moses. 50 days after the exodus. The Holy Spirit was given 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All those are tithes and prophetic fulfillment in the future. Luke again tells us in, um, in Acts 2, 1 through 4, he says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance or the ability. Now, there never was any other commission from Jesus or the Father to replace the person of the Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Son, the Son left and sent the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates, guides us, speaks to us. We'll be looking at some of the things Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. He's the person. 
He's not in it. He's not in essence. He's a person, the third person of the Trinity. Now, the ability to speak in tongues and that, that's one of the gifts of the Spirit of God. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to worry about it. Not everybody speaks in tongues. Not everybody has the same gift. God gives the gifts severally as he wills, but all the gifts are to be manifested, decent, and in order according to the Spirit and the Word of God. Often the, the, Spirit, uh, the gifts of the Spirit are manifested in some type of circus-type atmosphere without any real order, and there's a lot of chaos that goes along, and uh, that is not of God. That's just a bunch of flesh and people wanting to grab attention for themselves, and uh, it's not of God. And so that's one of the extremes that I spoke about at the beginning. Now, there are antagonistic spirits towards the Spirit of Christ in the church age right now. First uh, Timothy 4.1 says, The Holy Spirit warns about seducing spirits and doctrines of devils in the latter times. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Seducing spirits and doctrines of demons are taught by fallen angels that are spirits. Some are demons that need to occupy human bodies, and the others are just evil spirits that roam the earth to oppose the work of God. They are as real as the good angels, and they are as real as you and as real as I. Okay? Now, we are told not to believe every spirit, but to try them to see if they are of God by their acknowledgement that Christ came in the flesh. In 1 John 4, 1 through 3, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. In other words, he came in the first coming. In a human form, God became man, the incarnation. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So one of the greatest attacks by demons and false teachers and false prophets is that Jesus is not God. He was a good teacher, great man, prophet, but he's not God. Or that he wasn't totally human. The two sides are attacked. He had to be totally God and totally human to be the last Adam and to be able to have access to God. And the Bible teaches both completely. Uh, Herbert Lockyer stated the following. The error of treating the spirit as an impersonal way can be traced back to the 3rd century when the theory was advanced that the Holy Spirit was a mere influence, an exertion of divine energy and power and emanation from God. And that's what a lot of people today in the New Age believe, okay, with existentialistic philosophy and all the occults that go on. A lot of the emergent church gets into Richard Foster's uh, celebration of discipline, emptying your mind. That's yoga, okay? That's not biblical, but it works its way into the church, okay? So you've got a lot of stuff going on in many churches that is not biblical. It's new age in many different ways, okay? So each believer is responsible to study God's word to see what it teaches about the person of the Holy Spirit and compare it to what men say. Acts 17, 11, we are to be uh, like the Bereans, more noble than the Thessalonians, and that they search the scriptures daily to find out if those things are so. That's why we study. That's why we look to the word. That's why we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's why we hit series like we're doing right now, so that you can grow and mature and examine for yourselves the scriptures. Each believer is to know that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace. Hebrews ten twenty nine. 
the spirit of grace. He is the silent um, representative of Jesus Christ. He points us to Christ. He, he does the work of Christ. Every believer receives the Holy Spirit when they are born again, being born of the Spirit and the Word of God, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3 through 5. You must be born again of the water and of the Spirit. The word water there he uses is the Word of God. Um, first, in John fifteen three, he tells us, You are cleansed by the words I have spoken unto you. Ephesians 5, 26, He will present himself a bride without spot, wrinkle, any such thing, by the washing of the water by the word. Okay? You're born again by hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, uh, 17. And it's the spirit of God that brings the conviction, brings the illumination, and then he respects your choice whether you want to be born again or not. And if you call on his name, then he will begin the regenerating process in your heart and make you a child of God. So every sort of spirit is being consulted today in our society from the common person to the professionals under the guise of wisdom and openness of mind through tolerance and acceptance of diversity and political correctness, evidence of willfully rejecting God. Book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. He speaks about all the corruption through the whole chapter. It says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Because they create God in their own image, after their own likeness. And some people say, well, I can't believe in the God that would judge people or send them to hell. Well, you're the lost. It's your loss, not God's. Whether you can believe a God like that or anything, it doesn't make any difference. You're not God. And you can't just uh, shape God after your own uh, uh, opinion. You've got to go to the Bible to understand the revelation of God himself. He tells you what he is. He's holy. He's just. He's good. He's perfect. He loves you. He died for you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to guide your life. He wants to give you strength that you don't have to live and to make the right decisions. So the will of God is revealed in the Word of God. Very important. So every one of us uh, need to present our body in living sacrifice. Um, it says in Romans 1, 21, 22, because though they knew, they knew God, <clears throat> they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their minds or thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And so, th there's that danger all the time for people to lean to their own understanding. Uh, so these are some important reasons for the doctrine of the person of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we have the scriptural evidence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as well as the New um, the scriptural evidence for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament first. The book of Genesis allows us to see the person of the Holy Spirit as co-creator. In Genesis 1-2 it says, And the Spirit of God moved or brooded, hovered upon the face of the waters. By his Spirit he adorns the heavens, Job 26-13 says. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life in the creation of man. In Genesis 1, 27 and 28, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, and formed man of the dust of the ground, and listen, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It's the Spirit of God that gives us life. It is very clear. Job 33, 4 says, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Very clear. You didn't come out a monkey. You didn't evolve from a little polywog. Um, you're creating the image and likeness of God by His Spirit. The book of Exodus tells us God filled Baziel and Aholiab with the Spirit to perform all manner of workmanship for the tabernacle. We were just going over this in our Wednesday morning study up in the cafeteria, the coffee house. We're there in the book of Exodus going through the tabernacle. 
Uh, he put it this way. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, knowledge, and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting jewels and setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship in Exodus 31, 3 through 5. God gave these special craftsmanship to these men to do the work and the workmanship of the tabernacle. He didn't have it in themselves. God anointed and directed and empowered them and gave them the ability. In Exodus 35, 34 through 35, he says, and he was, and he has put in his heart the ability to teach both in him and Aholiab, the son of Amishamach, the tribe of Dan. He has filled him with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tap, uh, tapestry maker in blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine linen of the weavers of those who do every work of those who design artistic works. So yes, there were others that were talented in this area and everything, but God chose these individuals and endowed them and empowered them by the Spirit of God to be able to do these things. Sometimes people say, well, you know, my, my, my gift uh, that God has given to me is, uh, you know, I, 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 I make real good wood, woodwork in that. Well, that's not a gift of the Spirit of God. We have it here in the Old Testament, but it's not listed in the New Testament. You may have talent, you may have ability, but talents and abilities are not gifts of the Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit are supernatural endowments to do something that you did not have in yourself, okay? Supernatural gifts. They're not normal, natural talents or abilities that you learn to an extent. Now, the Holy Spirit is seen coming upon men to equip them for leadership and service also in the Old Testament. Um, in uh, Numbers 11, verse 17 and 25, it says that God took of the spirit that was upon Moses and he placed it on the 70 elders to help Moses do the work of ministry. Because remember, he was standing all day and people would be asking him questions and Jethro, his father-in-law, came and said, what are you doing? He said, well, you know, I got to just send to the people. So you're going to wear them out and yourself. And he gave him advice and Moses went to God and God did that and took some of the spirit of Moses and put it on seven the elders so they could distribute the work and the people would get their problems resolved and they would get answers. In Judges chapter uh, 7, he says here in the book of Judges, the Holy Spirit came upon Gideon, Samson, and others and clothed themselves with them literally in the Hebrew. Enabled them, the judges, through the book of Judges. The Spirit of God came upon them. Samuel told Saul the Spirit of God would come upon him in 1 Samuel 10, 6. The Spirit came upon David, Samuel, uh, as, as Samuel anointed him in 1 Samuel sixteen thirteen, If you remember, he's just a shepherd boy. David in Psalm 139, 7 cried out, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? The spirit of God is eternal. In fact, you read some of the signs, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. If I go to the wilderness, you're there. There's, there's nowhere you're not there. Okay, and by the way, hell is isn't run by Satan. Hell's run by God. Hell's a place of punishment, not reward. Satan doesn't run hell. All right, so you have to get your theology right. All right, the Spirit of the Lord came upon the prophets of the Old Testament: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. And all the rest of them, even to the last one, Malachi. They didn't just prophesy of their own. Second uh, Peter chapter one, three um, uh, through four, not three through four. Second Peter chapter one, verse nineteen through twenty-one says that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they were carried along by the Spirit of God to speak God's revelation, not of their own, but as God's Spirit came upon them. That's why it's called God's word. 
That's why what you possess in your lap right now is God's inerrant, infallible word. It doesn't become the word of God when you read it. It is the word of God whether you read it or not, whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter. It's God's word. It's revelation of himself. Now, the scriptural evidence of the Holy Spirit over in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is responsible for the conception of Christ in the womb of Mary. We see that very clearly. In Matthew 1.20, Matthew tells us, but while he, Joseph, thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Luke puts it this way in Luke 1, 34, 35. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Meaning that she's with a child. Since I do not know a man, that means sexually, she's a virgin. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born, meaning Jesus, will be called the Son of God. Very clearly in the New Testament, Jesus was the result of the Spirit of God coming upon Mary. The Holy Spirit is seen descending on Christ at his baptism, if you remember, in the shape of a dove, symbolic of gentleness and purity. Uh, it says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighted upon him, Matthew three, sixteen. So you have the Son going into the water, you have the Spirit descending on the Son, and you have the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The Trinity. All there. Luke 3.22 And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. John 1.33 says that God told him that the descending of the Spirit was a sign to identify the Messiah. Because John didn't know. It's hard for us to understand that when they're cousins, they're six months apart, their moms knew each other, they're cousins, but nevertheless, God gave them that sign, the one who the Spirit descends upon. He's the one. The Holy Spirit is the regenerator, the illuminator, and the developer of our faith in Christ Jesus. In John 3, 5, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless... One is born of water of the Spirit. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus told us to Nicodemus. It's absolutely a work of the Spirit of God, regenerating man. Paul told the Corinthians that the things of God are revealed to us by the Holy Spirit of God in 1 Corinthians 2.10. The natural man does not understand the things of God or the Spirit, but we can judge all things because we have the mind of Christ. Paul says, we are being changed into the image of Christ from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord, in 2 Corinthians 3.18. The greatest amount of evidence in the New Testament is given to us in the book of Acts, which really um, should be entitled, The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Through the apostles. <laughs> That's a better title. It's not the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. Through the apostles. Let me give you some of those things. Um, some I've already implied and mentioned. But um, Peter again identifies the Holy Spirit. Uh, fulfilling prophecy there. In the book of Acts. When the Spirit of God came upon them. And they were filled with the Spirit. And they spoke in tongues. And that's fulfilling by the way. The prophecy of Joel chapter 2 verse 28. And he and Peter quotes that prophecy 
that, that uh, on, my, on, my, your, on your sons, the Spirit will come, they're going to prophesy your dream, dreams, the old man. And he goes on all the way to the second coming of Christ, and he doesn't make a distinction. He speaks about the stars falling and, and everything else, and, and he doesn't make a distinction between the first and the second coming, the fulfillment of that. He just shares it all out, okay? But knowing the prophecy of the first and the second coming, we can make the distinction and see the difference. Um, we are told that great power came upon the apostles in Acts 4.33. We are told that the people were cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit in Acts 5.32 and 33. You see, no, I don't convict anybody. I can't convince anybody. I preach the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God is dealing with people's hearts. And if your heart is open, God will show you your need of Christ. God will show you your sin. God will show you your need of Him. And as your heart is open, He will do a work in you. But... We can't do that work. We give the word of God out so God can do his work. In Acts 6.10, Stephen could not be resisted to the wisdom of the spirit by which he spoke. And you know that they ended up stoning him, right? First martyr of the church, Jesus stood to his feet. In Acts 8, 15 through 17, the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit after they believed you cannot receive the Spirit of God until you believe or born again, synonymous. The Holy, or Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit, it says in Acts 9, 17, that great enemy of Christianity, the one who killed Christians, incarcerated them, caused them to blaspheme God. And um, he was filled with the Spirit of God and he became a new man, a powerful instrument for God. Acts 10.44, the Holy Spirit fell on all the house of Cornelius as Peter is preaching. And he's telling them about the Lord and he's preaching the gospel and he doesn't even finish his sermon. And God just saves them and baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need our permission. <laughs> God does the work. In Acts 15.28, the Holy Spirit was the advisor. To the first church council. Because remember they were trying to. The Judaizers were trying to put the Gentiles. Under the law. To be circumcised. And to follow all the dietary. And all the holidays. And all that kind of stuff. And there uh, they said. It seems good to the Holy Spirit. And to us. They did not say it seems good to us. Oh and by the way the Holy Spirit too. No. The Holy Spirit first. Then to us, because we agree with the Holy Spirit that agrees with the Word of God. Okay? The plumb line is the Word of God, ladies and gentlemen. The Holy Spirit comes first. The Holy Spirit forbade or prohibited Paul from preaching in Asia in Acts 16.6. If you're walking in the Spirit and you're walking with the Lord and your heart is open to be guided by God, sometimes He will tell you just to shut up. Do not respond to what's been told to you. Do not lash out. Or He'll tell you speak. And then you get to choose whether you obey or you don't. God knows. Paul told the Ephesian elders that he was going bound in the spirit to Jerusalem in Acts 20, verse 22. As a prisoner, bound in the spirit. In Acts 28, 25 and 28, Paul says, Well spoke the Holy Spirit by Isaiah. And he shook the dust off his feet and he went to the Gentiles. The Jews were so hard-hearted. That God allowed Paul to give them up. You're talking about the last chapter of the book of Acts. All those years. And sometimes God will do that. You'll minister the gospel and there'll come a place where God says, you know what, just leave them alone. Just pray for them. That's all. And sometimes God tells people, told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I don't want you to pray for them no more. And if you pray for them, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Three times he tells Jeremiah about the people of God in his day. 
That's pretty extreme. Because God knows the heart of man. William Barclay says the following. To call the Holy Spirit paracletos um, is to say that the Holy Spirit is the person who enables a man to meet four squares and erect the sorrows, the struggles, the burdens of his world, the person who, uh, who nerves the feeble for the battle and who makes the coward brave. When we think of all that, we can do no other than pray, God, send thy Holy Spirit upon me. Very important. Without him, we can't do it. That's why Ephesians 5.18 says, keep on keeping on being filled with the Spirit of God. It's like driving a car. If you run out of gas, you're not going anywhere. You got to make sure you have gas, right? It's the same thing. You got to make sure you're walking in the Spirit. You're being filled with the Spirit of God. The person of the Holy Spirit is the one who is responsible for the life of Christ and the believer. We cannot do it ourselves. Galatians 3.3 says this. Uh, he says, are you so foolish, having begun the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect in the flesh? If you were not born again through the flesh, but through the Spirit of God, are you going to continue now in the flesh, switch back? Of course not. You just get yourself in trouble like you did before. Paul's death affirmation, listen to him in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What he's talking about is I've been reckoned dead and I reckon the old man daily dead. Romans 6, 6 and 6, 11. Every day, the minute you get up, you must reckon that old man, that old woman dead, and every opportunity, because your flesh will want to be make itself available. You have the flesh, the world, and the devil. And they're all there to destroy you, not to build you up. The person of the Holy Spirit is used to equip the believer for service in the church. Um, talents and abilities just will not do. You know, sometimes you see a very talented athlete with great abilities, being baseball, basketball, whatever it is. And, they, and because they're so much better than everybody else, they're so talented they become lazy. They never really refine or push to their limit because they settle where they're at. Talent and ability is not enough. And the same with us. Talent and ability will never do. We need to depend on God's enabling through the Spirit of God. Romans 12.3 says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So, once again, God is the one who directs and guides us. We don't compare ourselves among ourselves as we be unwise. We're all different parts of the body. You cannot compare your little finger to your little toe. They're both little, but one's a finger, the other one's a toe. One's on your hand, the one's on the foot, all right? That illustration is given in the Bible so that we would understand it. So everybody in the church is different. We're not here to compete. We're not here to compare. We're here to pray that you seek the Lord, yield and obey to the Lord to be all that he wants you to be and to do what he's enabled you to do through the gifts of the Spirit of God for the edification of the body and for the glory of God. Very important. First Colossians, First Corinthians four seven says, "For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have if you have not received it? Now, if you did not, if you didn't receive it, why are you both seen as if you didn't receive it? It's all a grace. The person of the Holy Spirit is the one continuing to minister." And do the ministry of Jesus in the believer and the church. It's important. Um, 
the seven churches of the book of Revelation, as you know, when we study them, are addressed to by the Holy Spirit. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 2, chapter 3, seven churches. The Spirit of God is directing his attention to them. Ezekiel puts it this way. Um, I'm sorry, um, Zechariah. He says, uh, so he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is the captain of the armies of heaven. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And the context of that is during the building of the second temple, after the Babylonian captivity, God enabled them to do that. So the scriptural evidence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and New Testament is overwhelming. These are just some examples. So you can see that it's the whole Bible. Don't say, well, I don't really like the Old Testament. No, it's a foundation. You like your house where you live? It's like you saying, well, I like the house, but I don't like the foundation. If, if your foundation is not there, you don't have no house. It falls apart. The Old Testament is the foundation for the new, completely. Third and last, let's look at the um, identity of the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, in Matthew uh, 28, 16 through 20, the position of the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, third in order of submission and not in quality because he is God. He is part of the baptismal formula in there, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. He is included in the benediction of the Corinthian, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. He possesses the same attributes of the Father and the Son. In fact, he is called the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9, 14, eternal spirit. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Just like the Father, just like the Son. Now the Holy Spirit is just like Jesus who came to be the representative of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the representative of Jesus and not of himself. Let me give you the words of Jesus. In John 16, 13, he is called the Spirit of Truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. He will guide you into all truth. Jesus came to guide man into all truth about God. John 16, 13. He will not speak of his own self, but of Christ, just as Jesus spoke not of himself, but of the Father. In John 16, 13. He will tell us of things to come, as Jesus told of the Father's plan and will that he wanted to bring about. In John 16, 13 again. He will not glorify himself, but Christ, even as Christ glorified not himself, but the Father. In John 16, 14, Jesus said this, But when the Holy Spirit, or the Helper, comes, whom I shall send to you from my Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. John 15, 26. The Holy Spirit is the agent who came alongside the church and um, that she not be an orphan or the individual Christian. Uh, once again, John 14, 16, 18, and 15, 26. Let me give you some of those. In John 14, 16, um, John writes about the Holy Spirit and says, And I will pray the Father, this is Jesus speaking, and he shall give you another comforter or parakaleo, one to come alongside, that he may abide with you forever. The word another expresses a numerical difference, but denoting another of the same sort according to Vine's Dictionary. So in other words, the same quality, the same source, deity, 
but two distinct persons. A very specific word. The comforter again, Paracletus, is made up of two words. It's found four times there in John 14, 16, 26, 15, 26, and 16, 7. We've gone over this many times. Uh, para, alongside, kaleo, to call. Okay, you get paralegal, parallel parking, all the same root word, para, okay? Uh, the person of the Holy Spirit is a comforter, the one who comes alongside to help us do the work in our lives as an advocate, a lawyer for the defense that makes intercession for us. First uh, John 2, 2, my little children, I write these things that you do not practice sin, um, but if you stumble, you have Jesus Christ, the righteous, to make intercession for you, the first verse says. And he is the propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world, the second verse of 1 John 2, 2. And so he is the intercessor, 1 Timothy 2, 5, the go-between, the lawyer for us. He will guide you and be with us and abide with us forever, John 14, 6. The promise of abiding forever is in contrast to Jesus leaving since his ministry was fulfilled. The Holy Spirit is permanent for the age of the Spirit and grace. This is the context. So when Jesus says, it is necessary that I leave and he will be with you forever, it's in contrast to I came for so many years, I'm leaving. He's coming, he's never leaving. That's the context, okay? Very important. This passage is used often by Calvinists for eternal security, completely out of context. The context is just what I told you, and you can read it for yourself. Now, in John fourteen eighteen, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. The word orphans means uh, bereaved or parentless. Uh, in other words, he comes to complete you, to come alongside you, to empower you, to direct, to guide. The idea is one of being um, comfortless alone when someone's all alone. The Bible says two is better than one. If one falls, the other one will pick them up. If, if, if you're cold, two can lay together and get some body heat, right? Um, it's always, two is better than one, always, always. Um, the believer has been adopted as a son and a daughter in uh, Romans 8.15, Ephesians 1.5. Children of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who is to come upon the believer continuously. In John 7, 37 39, the last day of the great feast, when water was not brought forth from the pool of Siloam, uh, that day Jesus stood to his feet, and Jesus spoke of the future time after his glorification when the Holy Spirit would be given without measure. Uh, he says, Out of your innermost being shall gush torrents of living water. This is what the Spirit of God does to your life and mine. If you've walked with God for many years, you know what I'm talking about. If you're married, you definitely know what I'm talking about. Because you cannot be married and walk in the flesh. You'll destroy each other. You have to walk in the Spirit because we are selfish and self-centered. Jesus, speaking to his disciples on prevailing prayer, said that God would give the Holy Spirit to those who ask in Luke 17, 1 through 12. That is not to be born again. That's to be empowered. That's the context. To be empowered. You don't have to ask for the Holy Spirit when you're born again. He gives it to you automatically. It's for empowerment. The giving of the Holy Spirit in Luke is synonymous with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Even as he told the disciples in Acts 1.8, uh, Terry in Jerusalem to you being due with power from on high. There are many synonymous names that we don't have time for this evening, but they all imply the baptism or the filling. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And the word receive there in, in, in John is volitional. It's not passive. The statement was not an immediate impartation of the Spirit in the form of the baptism of the Spirit, but rather a command 
to take hold of the Spirit. The verb is hence a command to incisive action. It's not passive. The book of Acts tells us that being all of one mind, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer in Acts 1, 13 through 14. The Greek indicates an untranslatable article, the, that is not in the English. The text really says, devoting themselves to the prayer there in Acts 1, 13 and 14. What prayer? Could it be the one Jesus told him in Luke's gospel and the one for the baptism of the Spirit? I think so. I don't think that there is room for any other interpretation in view of what took place at Pentecost. They were waiting, praying for the empowerment of the Spirit of God. They were praying to Jesus, not to Mary. Mary was praying to Jesus. <laughs> she was there. John said, There is one among you who is baptized with the Holy Spirit. John one thirty three, Talking about Jesus. A.W. Tozer, a previous generation, challenged all of us as he stated the following. This guy was an incredible guy last century, about in the 50s. Quote, that every Christian can be and should be filled with the Holy Spirit would hardly seem to be a matter of debate among Christians. Yet some will argue that the Holy Spirit is not for plain Christians, but for ministers and missionaries only. Others hold that the measure of the Spirit received at regeneration is identical with that received by the disciples at Pentecost. A few will express a liquid hope that someday they may be filled. I want here boldly to assert that it is my happy belief that every Christian can be and have a copious outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the measure far beyond that received at conversion. Amen. I agree with him. So the person of the Holy Spirit, being the third person of the Godhead, is called God by Peter when he told Ananias, you have not lied unto man, but unto God, the Holy Spirit, in Acts 5, 3 through 4. The person of the Holy Spirit never says anything contrary or in addition to God's word. Jesus said he speaks only of him and his word in John sixteen thirteen, He says, however, when the spirit of truth he comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. The Holy Spirit spoke and directed the affairs of the church, calling men out by name. Acts 13, 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Every believer needs to be filled daily with the Holy Spirit to be empowered to please God. It cannot happen any other way, ladies and gentlemen. It just cannot. And so the identity of the person of the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Godhead. So, to the question, what about the person of the Holy Spirit? We get our answers again from the Word of God through these three vantage points. The important reasons for the doctrine of the Holy Spirit of about the person, we get it from the Scriptures. The scriptural evidence of the person of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and New Testament can be clearly confirmed. And the identity of the person of the Holy Spirit can only be one. He is God, like the other two persons of the Godhead. And so it's important that we get our answers from the Bible and not from our own opinions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and goodness. We thank you for tonight. We pray you continue to teach us. And we thank you for those that are listening over the Internet and the radio out in the world. Lord, um, someone doesn't know you, Lord, you will speak to their hearts. And if you're out there, if you don't know Jesus and you've never been born again, the Spirit of God would have you to pay heed to the illumination, the conviction that he gives you, and you would call on his name.
that he may forgive you, that he may make you a child of God by grace through faith to save you right now, calling upon him. Real simple. This is your prayer to him if you want to be born again. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Lord, baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.